Well, this season we are learning from uh, the New Testament book of Ephesians. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there uh, to uh, Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. You'll find Ephesians chapter 3 on page 828 of your church Bibles. Ephesians chapter 3, pages eight, page 828. And we're going to be looking at the first uh, 13 verses of uh, Paul's letter. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote a letter to Christians living in the ancient city of Ephesus. And so... You can follow along with me. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, uh, just put your name in the navy blue uh, Bible in the pouch in front of you, and you can, uh, you can have it as our gift and take it home as your copy of the, of the Bible. And um, I'm also going to be reading here these first 13 verses. You'll also find that on the screen behind me. For this reason, I, Paul... The prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is God's word. I wonder how many of us need to hear verse 13. Look at that verse again. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged. How many of you are here today and you're discouraged?
Last Tuesday morning in our staff meeting, uh, we spend time in prayer over the requests that you have written on your uh, registration cards and either put them in the offering plate, those get sorted, um, or sometimes you'll have a request that you'll uh, leave at the Welcome Center or you'll slip a request for prayer on paper and give it to uh, me or one of our staff. And on Tuesday mornings, 8.30, we pray over every one of those requests. Uh, Last Tuesday, uh, we prayed for a family uh, in our church that's going through a divorce. We prayed for a family in our church that has a, a, a health situation that just isn't going away. We prayed for a family in our church um, over a job search. Job cutback. It's going to affect in, their income. Most of what we pray for on Tuesday mornings, not all, not all, but most of what we pray for on Tuesday mornings are we're asking God to give strength to his people at Windsor Road in the middle of discouraging situations. I wonder how many of us are here today and we really need to hear, we really need the Apostle Paul to lock eyes with us and say, I I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged. How many are here today and you're just feeling the clouds of discouragement? 2,000 years ago, some Christians like us heard these words for the very first time. Christians who lived in the ancient city of Ephesus, which 2,000 years ago was the most modern of cities. They had come to know Jesus Christ as the ruler and king and emperor of heaven and earth. The apostle Paul came to this city, and this city that was idol-infested, this city that had as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis, a phenomenal economy was built around this temple. And Idols of this sensuous and grotesque figure, Artemis, just uh, flourished throughout the city of Ephesus. And on top of this, there were uh, temples to emperors, the Roman emperor, whom the citizens worshipped, whether they believed it or not, as divine I'm talking about Augustus and Tiberius and Domitian. And and that's just the way the culture was. But the Apostle Paul came and preached the news that the God-man Jesus had come to earth. And he lived and he died a violent death on a Roman cross. And by the power of God, he was raised to life and ascended and is seated at the heavenly realms over Artemis, over uh, the emperors, 
Jesus himself is in charge. He is sitting at the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven. And this truth just cut through and dissipated the fog of of a false belief system in this glorious city of Ephesus. And, And large numbers of people began to worship not the emperor, not Artemis, but King Jesus. And and the culture began to be transformed because of the truth of the gospel. So much so that it it began to affect the economy of the city. Think about that for just a minute. The growth of Christianity affecting the financial economy of a city in a negative way. You say, how, how does that work? Well, it worked in Acts chapter 19. A couple of years into the growth of Christianity in the city of Ephesus, Acts chapter 19 verse 24 speaks of a silversmith whose name was Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis and it says brought in no little business for the craftsmen. Acts 19.25 says, he called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. Hey, idol worship pays. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and uh, led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. So there's nothing unclear about Paul's message. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. And when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And, the, and, and then chaos ensued and there was a mob that gathered at this 25,000 seat amphitheater and, and Paul was, was hurried out of town for fear of his life and he left after about three years there and what did he leave this church with I mean how does this church of house churches I mean, what did he leave them with well I'll tell you what he didn't leave them with he didn't leave them with iTunes so that they could download Randy's sermons it didn't, didn't leave them with, uh, you, know, well, well, you know, while I'm gone, uh, go to Amazon.com and you can get these books. Nah. Didn't leave them with seminars. Didn't leave, what did he leave them with? Well, he left them. He left, they were left with uh, elders that he had trained and discipled who would shepherd these Christians. They were left with memories of, of Christian teaching and doctrine. That's what they were left with. They were left with the presence of the Holy Spirit who indwelled the spiritual community there. That's what they were left with. And, then, and, and Paul and, and, and you say, well, and that's no small thing because we're here. That's what they had, and we're here. Oh, and a few years later, they received this the letter to the Ephesians, one of 66 books. That's what they had. And and they're reading this, and, and, and they have discovered that their pastor their apostle their teacher is now in prison 
And while he's been gone for a few years, the culture hasn't let up. The culture continues to exert its will and, and trying to shape them into going their way. And when we talk about trying to be tough and going against the tide, but so often when push comes to shove, we just step right in line. We step right in line and still say, I'm going to be different. Yeah. But I'm telling you, they were discouraged because they heard now that their pastor was now in prison and the culture in Ephesus and Roman culture is not going to let up and the temple of Artemis is still just as popular as ever and people are, are talking to them and they're talking about their faith and they say, well, where is your temple? They say, well, we don't have a temple. I mean, well, I mean, well we, we are a temple. It's just like, well, you know, and, and it's like, and now... Paul's in jail, and, and they're beginning to wonder, is this Christianity thing for real? Is this, is this Christianity thing for real? I mean, okay, if, if Jesus is on the throne in the heavenly realms, and he reigns supreme over the Roman Caesars, over Roman power, over the temple of Artemis, if Jesus is in charge, why is his star player in jail? And they get this letter. This letter comes to a very discouraged church. And, and, and I just want you to glance to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 and 22, so that you can understand they truly are discouraged. Ephesians six twenty one says, Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord. So Tychicus is the postal carrier. He's going to deliver. He's going to deliver this to them. Tychicus, what a great name, Tychicus. What was his nickname? Tick? I don't, what was it? Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. And then look at 622. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may, what? Encourage you. They are They are under a cloud of discouragement and they need to be encouraged. Anybody here need to be encouraged today? Is anybody here underneath a a cloud of discouragement? These verses are for us who are. And so what I want us to do is I just want us to talk uh, this morning about Paul and discouragement. And then I want to talk about uh, the, the Ephesian church and discouragement. And then I want to talk about us. That's where we're going today. Paul, Ephesus, and us. First Paul. Well, ironically, as you read these verses, the apostle Paul is not the one discouraged at all. And that's really the purpose of this paragraph. That's really the purpose of specifically verses 2 through 12. The entire purpose of verses 2 through 12 is is so that Paul can explain to the church at Ephesus why he's not discouraged. Paul wants them to see what he sees so that they will feel as he feels. And and what Paul says in verses 2 through 12, just kind of in a summary sentence, is this. I'm not discouraged because I know that God has a plan. And I know that I am a part of that plan. And what is that plan? That plan is, God has a plan, and that plan is to bring all of heaven and all of earth 
and put it at the feet of Jesus. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment. And what is that? To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's the plan, Paul says. God's plan is to bring all of heaven and all of earth, everything seen and unseen, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, humans, angels, everything, and put it at the feet of Jesus and Paul says I'm a part of that plan and and he explains himself in these verses he tells these Christians that his part of the plan is that God has chosen him to receive the plan and God has chosen him to preach the plan let's talk about those two uh dimensions for just a moment first the receiving of the plan Uh, Paul talks about this in verses three and four He says, you know, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. Now, what is that? The mystery made known to me by revelation. What's he talking about there? I think he's talking about when he was converted. The apostle Paul used to be a a, 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 a Jewish rabbi. He used to be a Pharisee. And he used to be a Christian killer. He would hunt down Christians. He would put them in prison. He personally held the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death in the book of Acts chapter 7. I mean, he made it his life's mission to stamp out this, this heretical sect called Christianity. And he heard that there were some Christians in the city of Damascus. And so he just said, I'm going to go up to Damascus and I'm going to hunt those Christians down and put, put them in jail. And he, uh, just outside the city of Damascus, just outside Jesus Christ, put him in a full Nelson and gave him a body slam. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Who do you think I am? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up. I can't see. Get up anyway. Go into the city and you'll be told what to do. And Paul was blinded. And for three days, I mean, he didn't eat or drink. His world was rocked. His entire worldview was rocked. This person that Paul thought was a blasphemer was in fact the son of God, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul's life was transformed. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, that Jesus himself taught him the gospel. Listen to Galatians 1, 11 and 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. So Paul didn't get word of the gospel by Peter or James or Matthew. Well, how did he get it? Galatians 1.12 says, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Imagine Jesus Christ being the one to teach you. That was Paul. And, and, and he uses this word mystery. Did you notice that? He uses it several times in Ephesians. What is that? The mystery made known to me by revelation. I want to explain that word to you because when we, when we see the word mystery, when we use the word mystery, it's like a whodunit 
or we, we think, uh, you know, an unsolved mystery. And that's not how the Bible uses it. In the Bible, and I've got this on your outline. In the Bible, the word mystery means this, a hidden truth that can only be revealed by God. And in this case, a hidden truth that's no longer hidden because God has revealed it, you see. And I think Paul was reaching back in his Hebrew uh, Bible learning to Daniel chapter 2 when Daniel was asked by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and he wanted Daniel to tell him what the dream was and what the dream meant. That's a tall order. I had a dream and I want you to tell me what it was. Whoa. Uh, Daniel says, I can't. I can't. Daniel replied, no wise man enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. I can't, Daniel said. But Daniel 2.28 says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That's where Paul gets that term. And, And so when Paul uses the word mystery there, he's talking about the source. The source is from the throne of heaven itself. And just what is this mystery? Well, look at verse six. Here it is. What God has revealed is this. Through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Get get that little three three, uh, trifold description there. Heirs together, members together, sharers together. In other words, God's kingdom does not have the political borders that we like to think of. God's kingdom is global. It's a multinational, multi-ethnic, multilinguistic kingdom. And, and, and God is now not just focused on one race, but all races who are equal in his eyes. Heirs together, members together, sharers together. That's the receiving of the gospel that Paul, received, that Paul had. And then Paul says, I've received it, but I'm, I've also been commissioned to share it. Paul's task, verses 8 and 9, is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and to make plain the administration of this ministry. Preaching and making plain, same thing. And Paul sees this as an incredible privilege. I can't believe that I get the privilege to do that, which is why he says in verse eight, although I am less than the least of all God's people. Get that for a minute. That's, that's rich. And, and if you're an English teacher, you're just gonna go, ah, because I am less than the least. Paul takes a superlative and to that adds a comparative. In other words, he says, although I am the smallester of God's people. How was that, Janice? Janice is an English major. Ah! I saw you wince. All right. (laughs) Someone get that phone, will you? I heard it. Paul says, Paul says, you know what? Pride has been rooted out of my life. I mean, he's clearly a gifted man. He's a gifted leader, a gifted speaker, a gifted teacher. He's a church planter. He has a brilliant mind. And yet Jesus has taught him humility to where he describes himself this way. I'm the smallester of God's people. And even though I was the smallester, I was given grace. God has given me grace. And do you see how he defines grace in verses 8 and 9? See, see, grace is not Randy gets to go to heaven. That's not just grace. Oh, that's part of it, but it goes deeper than that. Grace is getting to participate with 
Jesus now in transforming the world, in sharing the treasure of the gospel. What does he call it? The unsearchable riches of God's grace. The unsearchable riches. I mean, you never, nobody ever really gets their PhD in the gospel. Nobody ever becomes an expert in the gospel because the older you are, the more layers you discover. Oh, this, this goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And Paul's mission is to share this with people who are ethnically different than him. And to say to them that through Christ, we are all adopted into one family. We are heirs together, members together, sharers together. We are one kingdom. We are a temple of living stones. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be discouraged. I'm not discouraged. I'm not. And why? Because of how he sees himself. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul... The prisoner of what? See, although he's in Rome, although he's chained to a Roman guard, although this will have gone on eventually for two years, Paul says, I'm not a prisoner of Rome, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And although the apostle Paul is a free Roman slave, how does he self-identify here in these verses? He says, I became a, a servant of the gospel. I'm a slave of the gospel. I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm a slave of the gospel. In fact, flip over to, uh, back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul self-identifies as, he says, I am an ambassador in chains. Now, anyone who knows anything about diplomacy would know that for an ambassador to show up in chains would be a total breach of protocol and a total insult to both the ambassador and the sending king. But Paul says, here I am. I'm an ambassador in chains. And he realizes in Rome, Paul is in a position. He's in a situation which will allow him to do as a prisoner what he would not be able to do otherwise. The apostle Paul is going to have an audience with the office of the emperor of Rome. Go figure. Well, what's there to be discouraged about, Paul says? Because Paul knows the plan. He knows the plan. And what's the plan? Well, in Acts chapter 20, verses 23 and 24, Paul will tell the elders at Ephesus, whom he will never see again. He says, I'm I'm never going to see you again. I know this much. But I want you to know what the plan is. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's the plan. That, this is why I'm not discouraged, Paul says. I, have a, I know that there's a plan and I'm a part of that plan. I'm not discouraged. What's there to be discouraged about? Question. How does this speak to their discouragement? Now we're going to talk about the Ephesians for a minute. How does this speak to, how does what we just learned here in these verses speak to their discouragement? Well, think about it, would you? 
Discouragement usually happens when you're not getting what you're going after, right? You've got this goal, you've got this objective, you've got this aim, and uh, discouragement has a way of kind of peeling back or, or pulling back the curtain to reveal what your heart is really and truly after. And maybe... I don't know, but maybe the Ephesians, maybe they had this idea. Maybe they had this desire. Okay, well, Paul's going to be coming back because he did that with some of uh, the churches uh, on his missionary tour. Maybe Paul's going to be coming back because we miss him, his preaching. We miss his pastoring. We miss his leadership, and we miss his presence, and, and maybe he's going to be coming back. Or, 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 you know, or maybe, maybe they had this idea, well, look, if we grow large enough, maybe we won't need to meet in all of these house churches. Maybe we can all meet together in one facility and kind of like you know you know you know the people who go to the temple of artemis they have their facility that they can speak their falsehood why don't we kind of get our facility we can speak truth and and maybe that would add credibility to our situation and you know what i'm getting at is that one of the reasons we get discouraged is because we get these thoughts or we get these ideas and these ideas become dreams and these dreams become expectations and timetables and then we begin to evaluate how we think god is performing at meeting our expectations and that church family is a recipe for discouragement and I don't know how it looks in your world but I know how it looks in my world it's very tempting for pastors to do their work in pursuit of glories other than the glory of God and it's very easy for pastors to do their work for purposes other than the purposes of God Be it personal acclaim, reputation, power, control, comfort, appreciation, ministry success. All of these are subtle little kingdom idols that greet every pastor. And yet in my line of work in pastoral ministry, the kingdom of self is a costume kingdom. It does a great job of masquerading as the kingdom of God. Because the way you build the kingdom of self in my line of work is by doing ministry. (laughs) And the fact of the matter is this. The God who is over all and in all and through all has absolutely zero allegiance to my puny little kingdom of one. If you happen to be discouraged, what you're really going after is the cause of your discouragement. Paul's goal, you know what Paul is really going after? Jesus. Passionately pursuing Christ. Which is what I want you to remember here from these verses. Passionately pursuing Christ changes discouragement from pain to plan, from pain to plan. So God's, 
God's goal in, in Paul's life is for him to, to go after Jesus. And so Paul says, I just want to please you, Lord. You want me to succeed? You want us to have a three-year run at this incredible city and have large crowds? Great, I'll do it. And then he's whisked out of town. You want me to stay locked up next to a Roman guard for two? Fine, I'll do that too. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I just want to please you. Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband uh, was brutally murdered in the 1950s. He was a missionary. Elizabeth Elliot said this, Jesus suffered not that we might not suffer, but that when we suffer, we will become like him. So if you follow Jesus, hey, the promise is not that you won't bleed to death or never suffer or never be persecuted. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that that when you suffer, because he suffered, you suffer to become like him. And that's what Paul's attitude. You know, Jesus, you suffered this much for me, I can suffer for you. You suffered the wrath of God for me, I can put up with the disdain of my department for you. And and then Paul says, and I don't have to know the reasons why either. I don't have, because Jesus, when you were on the cross, you said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And heaven was silent. And so I don't need to know all the reasons why. This is the reason why. I'm not Rome's prisoner. I'm Jesus' prisoner. And if this is where you want me, I'm good with that. And church, look at me. Once you make peace with that, you are free. Once you make peace with that, once you make peace with being Christ's prisoner, instead of of cracking you, it makes you whole. I mean, think of the glory of being a Christian. Think of what you once were and now what Christ has made you to be. Think of the, of the Holy Spirit in your life now that he has chosen you and redeemed you and adopted you. God has given you this incredible gift and you're upset about the wrapping paper? What's up with that? When you're going through a season of discouragement, the gospel says, forget yourself. Forget yourself. Here is a wonderful opportunity to have faith and to grow character and humility and have, and have your soul deepened. Here's an opportunity to declare that you're not Nero's prisoner. You're a prisoner of Christ. Here's an opportunity for you to say, you didn't fire me, Christ did. So what are you really going after? If you are not a prisoner of Christ, I guarantee you, you are someone else's prisoner. The the question is not, well, I don't want to be a prisoner. No, you are a prisoner. Just whose prisoner are you? And if Jesus is not your warden, someone else is going to be your warden, and you're going to be miserable. And you're going you, 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 to spread your misery to others too. Really, look at verse one. Paul says, Paul says, I, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, what's he say? For the sake of you Gentiles. And then, and then glance down at verse 13. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Your glory. 
You see that? When you experience a season of discouragement and yet you refuse to cave into discouragement, other people notice that. And when your faith and your focus on Jesus and you act and live and speak, he is my warden. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, but it means, it means, you know, it doesn't mean you're not going to cry, but it means that in the big picture, I realize that I'm part of the plan. And people notice that and they see that and they honor God for that. And if you go down, if you quit on Jesus, you're going to take people with you too. You will. And you say, well, I just, you know, that's too much pressure. I don't want that. You know what? (laughs) Welcome to the family of God. What do you mean you don't want that? I just want to sit in my chair and munch on my communion and look at the screen and then go home. No, no. What you want to do is you want to go to the Savoy 16. That's what you want to do. And that's not this. This is your family. And this is your, this is a kingdom. And this is a temple. And it belongs to Christ. And your life has ripple effects. And Paul says, I'm a part of the plan. And he was trying to tell the church at Ephesus, they're part of the plan. And you know what? We're part of the plan. Now I want to talk about us. We're part of the plan. (laughs) What plan? Look at verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, that's us, Windsor Road Christian Church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. You get that? You'd think that you're sitting in a chair on the sidelines watching some action going on in the field. You're on the field. Others are watching you. God is using Windsor Road Christian Church to testify to unseen angels and demons what it is God is doing to bring in the new heavens and the new earth to spread a passion for Christ. Some of us think, some of us give angels and demons just way too much credit. We think that they're all-knowing, omniscient. You know, they're not all-knowing. They're not. Angels and demons, do they do not know when I'm going to end this sermon. I don't even know when I'm going to end this sermon. What? They're not all-knowing. They're watching history unfold. They're watching what is God What is God doing. They're seeing his plan and purpose. They're seeing how Christ's physical body, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his seating at the right hand, and now he has sent his Holy Spirit into these frail bodies. And they're amazed at what's going on how his power through our weakness is transforming the world. And they're watching with wide-eyed wonder how God is working his power through us. And, and you know what? 
They were watching with wide-eyed wonder over the weekend of service. Listen to this. I mentioned to you a couple of testimonies about God's work through our lives. Listen to this testimony from someone in our church. I don't know who it is. My husband and I are struggling in our marriage and blending our family. The night before, we were at a desperate point, feeling our marriage might not survive the stress. But serving God together at the weekend of service has brought us closer and gotten us to stop fighting about petty things and to focus on serving the Lord. There's more peace in my house. Two of my children want to be baptized now. I mean, the angels and demons just saw that and go, ah, wow. How does, how does God do that? Through, how does he do that? It's amazing, amazing, amazing. Christianity is not, you be good now. Eat your vegetables. Try to gag down those lima beans. Christianity is God coming to a broken world in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ who defeated evil on the cross, was raised from death to life by the power of God, never to die again. He did this for the praise of his Father's glory and he has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell this spiritual community, the community of his believers here and all across the world, and angels right now are looking with awe, saying, what's going to happen next? What's Jesus going to do next? What is his majesty going to do next through his people? It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, what was it you were discouraged about? Well, here's what we're going to do. Um, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. Ben's going to lead us in um, one more song. And then our elders are going to be up here. And we want to strengthen you in prayer. That, that, that's what Paul does, and we'll look at it next week in Ephesians 3. In the midst of their discouragement, Paul prays over them. And, and we want to do this morning what we're going to talk about next week. I, I want to ask you to consider three questions as we close. And the first is this. How can our discouraging circumstance be a megaphone to testify to Christ? That's question one. Question two. How in our discouraging circumstance will we respond in a way that will build the faith of others? And then thirdly. If God never reveals to us why he allowed our discouraging circumstance, can I choose to thank him for revealing to us something greater, the gospel? Passionately pursuing Christ transforms discouragement from pain to plan. Let's pray.